The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Hi, and welcome to It's Relatable on MindBodySpirit.fm, where we talk about all things relationship. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and I'm so happy you're here. Get comfortable and let's dig in. I am so thrilled to be sharing this conversation with Shauna Ahern with you today. I've known Shauna for several years, but I knew of her long before we ever met in person. And that is because I have celiac disease. And when I was diagnosed with it 15 years ago, and I was utterly confused and paralyzed, a friend pointed me towards Shauna's work. And honestly, it's what saved me. For folks who don't know, celiac disease is a genetic intolerance for gluten. Gluten is the elastic protein in wheat, rye, barley, kemet, spelt, and some other grains. That's what gives bread that sort of beautiful sort of elastic quality. But celiac disease can damage the small intestine for years, silently or at least in a language that most of us don't know how to recognize. You can get headaches, stomach aches, have digestive issues, achy joints. Women can have early menopause or wildly irregular menstrual cycles. And all of those things can be explained by other things. And so celiac disease often goes undiagnosed for, in most people, for decades, um, to be honest. But while it's doing that, the immune system is treating gluten like a poison and attacking it. And the antibodies don't just attack the gluten, but they attack the small intestine. And so that comes with a whole host of other things, like impairing your ability to absorb nutrition, resulting in exhaustion, chronic pain, often anxiety, and a lowered immune system. People with celiac can't eat anything that's made with wheat flour or any of the other grains that contain gluten. So imagine this, no pasta, bread, beer, pastries, no soups or sauces made with flour, no pizza, no bagels, no donuts, no croutons. And of course, these days, many of these things can be found, quote unquote, gluten free and made from alternative flours like rice flour. But when I was first diagnosed, at the same time, my two young children were, there were few commercial options. And it seemed like everywhere I turned, there was gluten. The things I discovered by accident were things like soy sauce. Yes, the first ingredient other than water in soy sauce is wheat. Go figure and certain over-the-counter medications, and they all made me incredibly sick. Shauna's books and her wisdom and her advice saved me so much heartache and frustration. So without further ado, let me introduce her to you. Shauna M. Ahern is a storyteller by nature. First as an English teacher, then a screenplay editor and a writing instructor, Shauna has always worked with words and language to shape compelling stories. For more than a decade, she wrote a gluten-free food blog called Gluten-Free Girl, and it was one of the first gluten-free blogs in the world. She wrote and published a food memoir and three cookbooks with her husband, including one that won the James Beard Award for Excellence. However, as the nature of online culture shifted away from community to branding and influencers, Shauna decided to shut down Gluten-Free Girl. While she was proud of the hope and the dinners that she gave thousands of people, she knew that she had a deeper purpose in life than inventing gluten-free lemon poppy seed muffins. Although I'm grateful for those. Thank you, Shauna. When Ahern suffered a mini stroke and then was diagnosed with complex PTSD from her turbulent and chaotic childhood, she realized her storytelling needed to move away from food. She needed to dive into the places that scared her to heal from her CPTSD. And from this healing work, she has written and published her memoir, Enough, Notes from a Woman Who Has Finally Found It. In that memoir, she wrote an essay about everything in her life that had made her feel like she wasn't good enough. Now, Ahern facilitates women's circles to help other women talk about the hard things, to get curious about why they've been putting themselves last on the list, and to learn to build a practice of joy. Shauna also teaches writing workshops to women online, encouraging them to write the stories that scare them in order to release themselves from the story they've been living all their lives. And she does all of it through mindfulness. Shauna is a practicing Buddhist, a badass, and someone who believes in the power of curiosity and joy. 
to heal. There will be links to her books and her work in the show notes. But let's get started. Yay, I'm so excited to get a chance to talk to you today, Shauna. You too. This is, I'm super excited. So um, I'm just going to give people just a quick little bit of background in how I discovered you. Mm. And we're going to go on and, you know, talk about as much as we can possibly talk about in the next hour. But I (laughs) discovered you because myself and my two daughters were diagnosed with celiac in Mm. 2010. Mm. and we lived in Seattle and I remember thinking I like you might as well have just plucked the three of us off of earth and shoved us on a different planet like I had it was like there's no oxygen here there's Mm. no light here like I don't have any idea even what this means Mm. um and one of my friends was like oh (laughs) There's a book. <laughs> Donna, <laughs> you need to find this book. Mm-hmm. And, and I read this book and was like, it, it was like I sort of could relax into my nervous system. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, I mean, the first chapter is called Brand Name Childhood, right? <laughs> that was my childhood. I was born in 1971. I always joke about it as like we were the Pop Tart generation. Yep. You know, it was better living through chemistry. Absolutely. <laughs> I just bought my children some Pop-Tarts for the first time and they're very excited because we've had a little like, you know, we need some packaged food or else they're going to think that everything has to be made by scratch, which isn't mm-hmm. true. And so they got really excited the first one and not interested in the second one. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to dive into all sorts of different things today, but I would love to start out by talking to you about your relationship with food like Mm. it sounds like you know I mean in in your book which you have multiple books which I have Mm. all of because they (laughs) on your cookbooks you and Danny have saved my life a million times Mm -hmm. um especially if I have to go to a dinner party I'm like oh my god (laughs) what am I gonna make (laughs) party enough that I know I can eat if there's nothing else there I can eat right yeah Mm -hmm. um but so in, in the first book, Gluten-Free Girl, it, there's this sense that you get that you were kind of always interested in food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always been interested in life, you know, it, even as a little kid and in a very, very difficult childhood and family growing up, you know, um, I found little pockets of calm and joy in what was right in front of me in the moment. Um, and so I loved throwing my baseball against the garage wall and catching it a thousand times in a row. And I also loved, was not able to name it then, but I loved food for how it can ground you. And in the moment you, when you're savoring, nothing else exists. Um, and also as part of that for me, for a long time, there was an emotional relationship with food that wasn't healthy. I, had a very difficult time in my house. And so eating something like a pop tart or a wonder bread sandwich made with grilled cheese with the, you know, little shrink wrap, take the plastic off that American cheese. Those were things I could do. And they made me feel good when there wasn't much to feel good about. And Mm -hmm. so I had this intertwined relationship of just pure joy and mindfulness. And then also finding it an oasis, Mm -hmm. um, a way to rescue myself. And it's taken me decades to get rid of the second half. So now I'm just in the place where I am in awe of food and how it can gather stable. Mm. I wonder, do you think part of that sort of finding solace in food was that there was some agency there? Like it was something you could do for yourself. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to rely on anybody else. Yep, absolutely. Um, we did have a, a brand name childhood. We did have, you know, absolutely every packaged food that existed. <laughs> we had a year's supply of Clark bars in the freezer from a game show. My mom did it once. Um, and I don't blame them because it was the 70s. That's what everybody was doing. It was better food through chemistry. Yeah. But in particular, my mom was always panicked about food and whether it was safe, was it refrigerated, was it past the due date, was it going to be anything that we had to worry about? And so having a packaged food was a way to make sure that we didn't have to worry about it because it was good for another 18 years, you know. Um, So, yeah, going to the kitchen and finding um, 
I remember actually watching Julia Child when I was a kid. I loved Julia Child then and still do. And I would watch one of her episodes, the ones in black and white on PBS. And then I'd go into the kitchen and I would talk out loud what I was, as I was making a grilled cheese sandwich. Well, we're going to turn this electric griddle on to medium low. You don't want to go too high because the bread's going to burn. And then it was like margarine, Wonder Bread and grilled cheese. But the basic thing was still there that I was making some food for myself and I was able to comfort myself with it. Yeah, I think there's something about knowing that you can nourish yourself somehow, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, that is, I had a very challenging childhood as well. And um, my folks split when I was right before I turned eight years old and I became basically the primary caregiver for myself and my sister. And so I learned yeah. to cook at a really, really young age. And And there was something mm-hmm. that, like it builds your confidence. It sort of gives you this like, well, if everything else completely falls to shit, at least I can feed yep. myself, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And it's also the thing I love about it is that I just met a man recently who is a technical writing teacher at a community college. And he said he doesn't teach them to write manuals. He teaches them to write recipes. And I thought that was so fascinating because recipes really are a much more technical writing than the head note can be, for example. But having to know, okay, here's where you're starting. Here's where you're going. Let me guide you through. Be very specific. The best well-written recipes make you feel confident because you were able to accomplish it. And just say, go make some food is overwhelming for most people. And so there is a place for recipes for sure. My kids are now using them too. Yeah. Yeah. So I, my, and I love that. I, I remember being a kid and having to, you know, one of my teachers, I think I was in the fourth grade, you know, where there was some assignment we had to do where you had to write out detailed instructions for something. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, this is so much more complicated than I ever thought it was. But I'm also one of those people for whom recipes are like mostly a suggestion. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, When I first met my husband, who was a chef at the time, I think I'd maybe created one recipe for my website that was not a recipe. And I was so excited. I'm like, I made something up. I'd never done that before. And now I really just don't ever look at recipes. Um, We've worked together on creating thousands of recipes. We're mostly done with that now. Um, But I certainly have learned in my body how to cook. And that's the difference is knowing... Um, I could tell you the template for any soup right now. And yeah. it, based on a certain series of steps and cooking time and simmering and building flavors that I had no idea. So I think that's the next step when we start to learn to trust our bodies yeah. is that we stop relying on a recipe and we listen to the sizzle and we you know, mm-hmm. taste things as we go and see if it's salty enough. Not because they said half a teaspoon of salt, but because we know it's salty enough. Yeah, I love that so much. And I really want to dig into that a little bit more because I think, first of all, I I remember coming out to your house on Vashon in like mm. 2018 or 2019 and taking mm. this bread making mm. class, right? And that was mm. one of the things you said was like, cooking by instinct is like leveling up. Like figuring yeah. out, you know, just knowing, like, like, I'm not going to set a timer. I'm j- I'm just going to know when the sound changes. Yes. yes. The onions are caramelized, right? There's yeah. sort of like, and, and I remember just thinking, wow, not only because that really resonated with me, but also because as a person who struggled with celiac, yeah. not only for myself, but for both of my children, Trusting your body is really scary. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And if you grew up in, on top of it, you grew up in a house where the base level was chaos and uncertainty and danger. Then yeah. the last thing you want to do is trust your body. You want someone outside to tell you what to do because it's all so overwhelming. Yeah. Um, I have noticed that my cooking has changed and deepened and has been much more a meditative practice for me than it was when I was writing recipes. And that correlates with the time that I've been working on um, my CPTSD mm. and trying to heal my nervous system. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It is. There's this complex relationship, right. Between mm. like knowing that food can give you pleasure and then also being afraid of it frankly, mm-hmm. when you have feelings. Mm-hmm. like, especially oh, in the beginning, it's so much easier now, but I still remember the first time we ever traveled internationally with the kids. And I thought, what yeah. the fuck are we going <laughs> <laughs> to eat? Like, oh my, and I can remember like 
making all of these snacks, right? I made our own trail mix and I made, you know, for the plane, Mm -hmm. right? We needed snacks for the plane. I made banana bread with almond flour and coconut flour. And, you know, I had all these beautiful snacks and we got onto the plane and we're about to sit there for nine hours, you know, on our way to Amsterdam. And the flight attendant comes on and says, just so you know, we're the only snack item we're going to be providing on this particular flight are pretzels because there's someone with a (laughs) life-threatening nut allergy on the plane so you oh. can't, we can't even open a package of peanuts. And I thought, are you oh kidding? Like literally every food. Everything. And my kids <laughs> were so young. And here we are going to be trapped mm. on this plane. And every food I had made had nuts or nut flour in it. And we couldn't eat the entire oh. way to Europe. Oh. It was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. So that sort of complexity of... I love food and it, and and I know that it can be comforting and it can be exciting and it can mm-hmm. be fun. And also I know how I'm going to feel for the next three days if I accidentally yep. get something. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. But I find, first of all, it was hilarious when I, I got diagnosed in 2005 mm-hmm. and um, I didn't eat at a restaurant for three months because all the forums from people talking about celiac and how horrible it was told me that I'd never be able to eat there. Mm-hmm. Finally got enough of my grounding that I was able to go. And the first place I went, the server said, I don't understand. You don't want glue in your food. And I thought, <laughs> do you often put glue in your food? Cause that's no, not what I want at all. You know? So it has completely changed, but I find that it's still hard if you want to eat well, you know, it outside and a plane, anything, you know, everything. I joke that when, yay, we're gluten-free. We're so on, um, in the culture now that we can get the same crappy junk food everybody else can, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, that's not it either. <clears throat> so, but the idea of trying to be aware of, okay, the kid coming over is not free. Can't use the almond flour, use cassava or whatever it is. To me, that's inclusion. And that has really developed my muscles for making sure everyone is included is trying to feed my kids friends on play dates. And that makes me, you know, inclusion, including all kinds of people in our conversation, because hello, we're all human. That has always been important to me, but it's become even more tangible now. Yeah, because so many of the things, so many of our social things are, are revolve around food, right? Yep. Yep. And and so figuring out I'm I'm grateful in a lot of ways that my kids were diagnosed as young as they were because um and also that we live, you know, in the time that we live in because while it was incredibly frustrating for them as these young elementary kids to get invited to a birthday party where there was pizza and cupcakes Mm -hmm. and and it was like, well, I'm gonna Mm -hmm. pack you some cold cuts and some cheese and then your own free cupcake. Right. And <laughs> Absolutely. And they don't love it. So they feel like they have to. Yeah. And then here's another twist on relationship with food is that for my kids, we, you know, we cooked everything from scratch. Uh, as soon as Lucy was born, we didn't even use jars of baby food. We had this feeling like everything was better if it was, but it was also decided to be gluten-free. Yeah. And then when we, I think Lucy was six or seven and we realized all of a sudden, because she said something like, could we have that one thing we ate a couple of months ago again? And I realized we were never repeating the same food. We were always cooking for cookbooks. And so this kid had no sense of like dad's casserole from his mom or mom's chili, or there was no no like comfort food that she could count on. And then our, our second one came in too. And so we actually decided to switch to, yeah, let's start cooking food for kids more. My husband has always had a very hard time with that. (laughs) He was a restaurant chef for 35 years and he just doesn't know how to cook food without adding a little twist or adding quinoa or putting it in. And like kids don't like tomato confit. I'm sorry. And so we've had to have a big conversation since COVID began saying like, no, we need comfort food and it's okay if we get Kraft mac and cheese. They're yeah. allowed to have Kraft mac and cheese. Um, so because both of them are gluten-free, I mean, are gluten, they have no problem with it at all, thankfully. Mm. So it's it's such a nuanced conversation about food because there are so many ways to feel like you're doing it right, but then actually be restricting other things by doing so. So that's something I'm always thinking about. Yeah, I think it is. It's, you know, having that conversation with my kids when they were young was my oldest daughter would, cheat from time to time because Mm -hmm. she just wanted to belong. She didn't want to be the weird outcast kid. Right. And instead of 
you know, doing an I told you so or, you know, punishing her for it, I would just say to her, why don't you keep a food diary? Yeah. Just see, like, how does that make you feel? Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and then she could sort of connect the dots on her own of like, yeah, when I eat this, I can't poop for four days and I have a migraine. <laughs> But that's so beautiful because you gave her the chance to get curious and the chance to investigate it for herself rather than it being mom says. And that's actually how they learn. Yeah. Well, and I think that's this thing, right? There's that's one of the beautiful things about food is this sort of exploration. One of the pieces, one of the other things that I love so much in your book from 2007, what is the chapter on singular taste? Mm. where you write about like 10 things that, you know, if you can't afford really expensive organic, you know, non-GMO, whatever food from Zaymars, at least, you know, get really good quality olive oil or salt. And, and that's the thing. That's what I love about that, right? Is this, this, Mm. there's this play, there's this sense of creativity that we can have and this exploration. Mm -hmm. I think, Mm -hmm. So often we grow up thinking like food is just fuel, right? Instead of it can be this really sensual, exciting Mm -hmm. kind of experience or just fun. I, my, my kids discovered Nutella when we Mm -hmm. we were pretty young, we were in France and, you know, everybody's got the buckwheat crepes, which are gluten-free. Hallelujah. I'm not a Nutella fan, but the kids Mm -hmm. were, and so I'd never had it in the house for them. So they discovered Nutella. And of course, me as the like super hippie, crunchy granola Seattle mom was like, <laughs> there's palm oil in it. There's all this corn syrup, you know, whatever. <laughs> so I would go to PCC and I would buy the, whatever the organic, you know, version right. of Nutella was. And they, they would be like, mom, this is the worst. You know, their friends would come over and they'd be like, oh my God. And there are like seven or eight different brands that are, you yeah. know, all natural, organic, whatever. So then on my daughter's 16th birthday, they arranged a whole taste test, blind uh, test of each of these things, you know, alongside Nutella. And I think there were eight kids there and every single one of them picked the Nutella out instantly as their favorite. And I was they like, have it engineered. it's fantastic. I don't eat it very often either, but if you get a chance once in a while, you know, we talk in my family about um, the foods that feed you and the foods that feel good in our mouths. Mm-hmm. And so there is definitely a place for the foods that taste good in our mouths because I more than anything want to emphasize joy when it comes to food with my kids. Yeah. Um, they, I don't want them developing eating disorders. I don't want them developing like food snobbery. I don't want them developing some sense that they're better or that they're worse off than other kids who can eat, you know, Nutella. And so we just do the 80-20 rule. 80% of the time we're going to eat really good food, but it tastes good and you can help us cook it. And 20% of the time we can just eat, you know, something ridiculous if you want to. Um, Donuts at the bakery on Saturdays. You know, we've developed a Saturday treat day. We don't have any kind of you know, hardcore um, exercise, like the treat day that people do. It's more like, hey, Saturday's the days for dessert and let's go to the bakery and let's go to the farmer's market and whatever you want. And Mm -hmm. that seems to save them. It makes them feel really good. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, again, it's that sort of acknowledging that so much of our culture, all of the celebrations and all of the gatherings are around food. And so how do we incorporate that in ways that are mindful and intentional Mm -hmm. and, you know, are accomplishing? Mm -hmm. And also one of the things that, I mean, I stopped writing recipes. We stopped writing cookbooks for a variety of reasons. Mostly it was just so exhausting and it didn't really pay anything. Nobody knows that. Publishing just doesn't pay much. (laughs) I'm aware. (laughs) Yeah, you know. Um, But more than that, I just thought, you know, I looked at Danny one day and this marvelous man will just, he feels good in the kitchen. He starts, he always just starts a Put a, put a pot on, put some olive oil in, put some onions in. Then he figures out when he's cooking, when he goes. Mm. And so that feeling of really being so alive, you know, like really in tune with your body and your senses and smells and listening to the chopping and finding some calming of the nervous system for him. When he starts chopping, he feels good. He doesn't mm-hmm. feel anxious. He feels really good. So like, how do you write that in a recipe? How do you write, don't forget that chopping is meditation without seeming obnoxious, <laughs> you know? Right. right. So, um, and then I also really came to the realization, I was like, you don't, ever he's never used a recipe ever in his life not once mm. and um I remember our first cookbook Lucy was three four months old I think 
and we got the advance and then the baby came. So we had a little bit of time and we sat down one night. I said, okay, let's write this one. We'd already identified all the recipes, what essays would go with them. So now it's time to start making. Mm-hmm. And I had him sit down with me and I said, okay, tell me about that chicken recipe we're going to do. And he's like, um, well, you need some chicken. And some rosemary. I'm like, wait, what? I can't write a recipe with some chicken, you know? And um, it, I actually started to panic because it was, you know, I was a newborn mom. So and she had an ICU and terrifying birth. So, but I thought, oh my God, what are we going to do? And so I said, well, let's put it away. It's late. And the next day I was working on a blog post back when I was a gluten-free girl. Mm-hmm. And he was playing a Tiger Woods golf game on the Wii. So it's this gaming system where you have to move the you know yeah. thing in your hand and, and actually pretend that you're moving. Right. And I asked him something about something we created for the blog. And he was like, oh, that's a quarter fine chopped. Da, 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 da. He just listed all the specificities. And I went, wait, hold on a second. And went back to the recipe the night before. And he could tell me everything mm-hmm. exactly as he cooked it. And I, in the moment, realized this guy can't remember anything unless he's moving because that's how he makes food. All of that voluminous amount of cooking knowledge is in his body. But asking me, me asking him to say, all right, let's sit down and remember that doesn't work. And now I realize he has ADHD. Both my kids do. I do too. So that's an ADHD thing. But it's even more just his entire body of work was in the moment, on the line, making something and going. So we could not write a cookbook without that. So we, it, it's actually how we've written every single cookbook we've ever made. Um, and I would transcribe what he'd say. Um, but he's never been able to follow a recipe ever. And I thought, well, why are we writing recipes? It doesn't make any sense. Right. So I'm still trying to figure, I still am in love with food and still trying to do it. I'm actually trying to figure out how to create an ADHD cookbook that doesn't follow anything traditional. And maybe I'll do it as a website, but, um, you know, really, uh, narrative, mm-hmm. you know, give the, give the sense of here are the ingredients you're going to need. Um, but I don't like the way that typical ingredients suggest that you're already ready with your mise en place. It's intimidating for anybody with ADHD who does not cook. Mm-hmm. Like one quarter fine chopped rosemary. Okay, you scan that, you got rosemary. And then you look and you're like, wait, I have to chop it first. Yeah. You know, so really just trying to imagine how someone with ADHD who wants to become competent at cooking and wants to love it, how can we best do it? I think it might be recordings. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, you know, do a recording as you can hear me. Hey, don't forget right now that... Um, that pot, it's simmering on the edges right now. See how there are little bubbles? And if you let it go too much longer, it's going to boil. So give it a stir and turn down low. And so it feels like somebody is right by your side, which is what I've always tried to do in writing, but not quite so technical. So I'm just working with it, playing with it. I think that's great. You know, having that sort of, it's like this sort of mentoring idea, right? Like I'm going to help you connect to the dots and then, you know, you can learn how to do that on your own. It's one of the things that I love the most about your most recent cookbook um, Mm. that there are all these different like ways to play because that's what I do, right? I Mm -hmm. rarely Mm -hmm. go through and, and think I have every single ingredient on this list, right? I'll say, what can I substitute? Like, I don't, this is probably a very controversial opinion. I do not like rosemary. I love the smell of it, but I don't like the flavor of it. It's too astringent me so um I'm never gonna cook with rosemary it's not gonna happen right yeah. but if I can figure like can I put tarragon in that oh maybe yeah. there's chicken or fish yeah, yeah. Goes yeah. Right, right. Totally. so I that's one of the things that I loved about your your cook like I, mm. I have two giant vats of flour in my mm. pantry right one of them is grain free and one of them isn't and they're your recipes but they're not exactly mm. your recipes because it's like oh. well if you have this but you don't have this, you can substitute this, right? So there's right. there's ways to play with that. And again, Absolutely. that taps into our creativity, right? Like cooking can be really fun. Eating should yeah. be really fun. So, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and even the recipes for flour that we have in that cookbook, I don't use them anymore. I've come up with different ways I like to, to make things. I mean, for me, and I know now it's partly my my ADHD brain, if I have to do the same thing over and over again and you use the same thing, I'm just going to die. It's like, no. And there are amazing food bloggers who are making a lot of money, but have started to not so because the landscape has shifted lately. Um, Who have literally posted a recipe every Thursday at 10 a.m. for the last 15 years. And at all power to them, they have a power I do not have, but that is not who I am. So it's always about playing for me. It's always about curiosity and joy. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I'm, I tell my kids I am fundamentally unemployable because I can't, <laughs> I literally cannot work for anybody else because if same. I have to get into a routine where I have to do the same thing or the same kind of thing every day, five days a week, week yeah. after week, I will harm somebody. I can't. Yes. I can't. <laughs> it makes me crazy. Absolutely. So. I mean, I honor the neurotypical folks who do that because it makes them feel safe. And I love that. That is their work in the world. Yep. Not mine. I mean, I sometimes when people say, but you keep changing what you do. I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, that's exactly it. Because yeah. to me, it's evolution. It's growth. I mean, I yeah. wrote recipes for a long time. I ran Gluten-Free Girl for 13 years. And there was a time in my life when both Danny and I, we could not imagine life without gluten-free girl because it was our income as was our identity. Right. And that's exactly why I stopped among other reasons, because right. I did not want to be gluten-free girl. I wanted to be be discovering. Now I'm doing completely different things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is, you know, some of us weren't meant to sit still. Some of us weren't meant, you know, my dad worked for the same company for 35 years. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Good. Nope, Good on you. Not going to do it. I mean, I was doing something the other day and somebody asked for my resume and I was like, ha, huh? <laughs> what do you mean my resume? That's right. That's funny. I made one up because I thought, I thought like sort of in the middle of COVID, I'm like, well, I should probably should find a job again. No, it's not going to happen. Um, yeah. And then I, I think we're living in a really amazing time that people are talking about neurodiversity and are talking about mind versus body or mind with body. Yes. Because it's the conversation we need to be having. We've lived for generations now with people just stifling whatever they're feeling, not even knowing how to name it, and just thinking that their job is to show up at work every day and that there's nothing else for them. And then they get to the end of their lives and some of them regret how they lived. Um, I saw a piece, I'll see if I can find it for you. And it was um, a piece in The Guardian in London. And it was written by a woman who's a um, palliative care nurse. Mm -hmm. And she said that she talks with all of her patients, of course, and they often have regrets. And so she made a list of the top 10 regrets people say over and over again. Mm -hmm. Number one is, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Mm -hmm. Over and over and over and over. Yeah. And so for me, if life doesn't feel like playing joy, generally, they're always hard times. But if I'm not living a life in which I can cultivate more joy and I can give more joy to other people and I can remain curious and playful, then I'm on the wrong path. And I know that for sure. I can tell from my body. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I used to think I wrote a blog post. I still blog every once in a great while. And mm -hmm. I wrote a blog post a couple of weeks ago that I used to have this theory that you should do at least one fun thing every day. And yeah. now I think you should do at least one fun thing every two hours. Yes. I and agree. it can be Absolutely. like, whatever, like, you know, pulling up a TikTok that just makes you laugh until you pee mm -hmm. or, you know, mm -hmm. like running outside and standing in the backyard and goofing off with your dog or whatever, you know, it can last for 10 minutes or it can last for 45 minutes, but I think you should do one fun thing every two hours. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Um, I work with a lot of people on helping to cultivate their joy now um, because I look back and realize that joy was the through line in all the work I was doing. It was joy in food. It was joy in, you know, traveling. It was joy in writing. It was, joy, you know, joy has always been my love letter. And what I help people to do is make joy lists. So instead of these endless to-do lists, we all do. Um, I have cultivated this and I write three joys I'm going to give myself that day, at least. Mm. Three things I'm going to do for family and community and three things I will do for my work. And it has always been 72 things I would do for my work. And then like, if I have some time, I'll, you know. And so that, that fundamental shift has changed everything about me. And putting my own joys first on the list is really quite revolutionary for a lot of women. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of people that would just like, I know there are a lot of people that feel guilty about that. Right. It's like, yeah. yeah and that's one of the things that I said in this blog post is like, you don't have to earn this. You don't have to right. have a certain number of, you know, horrible, challenging experiences in order to earn a little no. of joy <laughs> at the end of the day. Like that's not the way it works, but we you know. taught ourselves that, you know, we Well, of, and this is, I always teach this in my workshops as well, which is we in America live in a culture that is ceaselessly about the individual and it is so wrongheaded. 
I mean, we community that heals, it's community that creates, it's community that does everything. And so we have been taught that we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, which is impossible. It seems very possible when you have a trust fund already, but not the rest of us. And of course, don't forget, you have to be white and um, upper middle class. But and you also this heteronormative, exactly. You know, all of those. One things. of the things I, I do is <laughs> really powerful with my women is because um, I run women's circles and women's workshops now. Mm-hmm. Is we make a list of all the shoulds that are embedded in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And I have them just list them out. You know, well, my favorite lately was I should have a thigh gap. And everyone on the call laughed because we all knew exactly what that was. And we all knew exactly that feeling. Um, I should be, I should have a cleaner house. I should have more saved up by now. I should, you know, whatever it might be. And we had like 72 shoulds at least. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure there are 500 more in there for all of us, but just taking out and naming it. And then I went through and said, this should is it possible if we look at this list for us to do all of these things? No, of course not. Okay. So obviously we need to let some go, but how do we let them go? Because let's look at this. Should I have, I should have a thigh gap. Is that true for you? No, I'm never going to have a thigh gap. I'm definitely never going to have a thigh gap, but does it still affect your mind in the back of your head? You still kind of think I probably should have a thigh gap. Yes. Then it's controlling you. And then what we do is go through all of those. And then we list the systems that are requiring these things of us, you know, whether it's the diet industry, the fitness industry, the fashion industry, you know, capitalism, misogyny, whatever it is. And we just lay all those systems out. And every time someone says, my God, I thought I was really um, at fault. And I realized I've spent my whole life serving these systems with my anxiety. Yeah. yeah, that's it. So when you can start to realize that there's a system that's telling you should, you yeah. can at least start interrogating, getting curious about it and dropping it when you can. Absolutely. Yeah. I do very similar work around grief and rage with like, what are the rules that we've been taught our whole lives about grief and, and rage and what are the external family, society, culture, religion things that taught us those rules? How are we living by those? And what is it doing to us? And I think, and then the second piece of that work, which is something that I feel like I don't know if this is just inherent to you. I don't know if it's because you're, you have neurodiversity. I don't know what it is, but there's a somatic piece to it. And I feel like there's something about you in particular where, and you can absolutely correct me if I'm wrong, but Mm. you've always been able to be in tune with your body and like listen Mm -hmm. to your body and be like, oh, something's not right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That became... Very important to me when I was in my uh, late 20s, early 30s, because I had been a big brain wobbling on a tiny stick figure or big thick to stick figure. <laughs> in my first 30 years of my life, I had been trained to be an academic. I had to be get good grades or else I was grounded, you know, all of these different things. And also on top of it, when you're living in a family where things are wrong and definitely they're wrong and no one is saying it and you're not allowed to talk about it. And you're not allowed to say, could we please get some help here? Mm. And you're punished if you're the truth teller. Then you, over time as a kid, start to just think you can't trust your body. Because your bo- my body knew all my life. I remember being eight years old and looking at my parents fighting again and me trying to help them, thinking, this can't be right. There's yeah. no way this is right. And then I, I, I really learned it through books, funny enough, in my mind. But this wasn't happening in Little Women. It wasn't happening in Harry the Spy. It wasn't happening in Somerset Mom or Dorothy Parker or John Cheever. And so mind and body both healed me. But when I got to New York and I realized, oh my God, I've just been a big brain walking around without touching my body. My first and most important task was to get in tune with my body. And that's even more finely tuned now. It's, um, I'm, I'm to the point where I think, you know, I need to stop researching anything and just listen to my body. And I'm teaching it to my kids and my husband as well. We really do a lot of body talk around here rather than big talk. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and and awesome, you know, I, food is a really great way to be able to get into your body, mm. you know, movement, mm-hmm. right? But I think it's true. There's this, so um, I I was in this workshop a few months ago around trauma and and grief and and the instructor threw this thing out there that just completely blew me away. And I still think about it five or six times a day. He said, mm. of all the information that our bodies take in and process in any given day, 20% of that information moves from the direction of our brain to our body. Mm. The other 80% of that information is taken in 
why all by our bodies, right? We're we're sensing temperature, we're smelling things, we're hearing sounds, we're getting the vibe mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. room. You can walk in and be like, oh, this is not a good place for me to be. Ah, right. Exactly. But we've been taught in our culture to cut that off, right? We're only 20%. Right. That's absolutely true. That's what I'm working on with my kids and my husband and me. Um, You know, both my kids have ADHD. We we and our doctors suspect they're both on the spectrum as well, which is great. No problem. It's amazing minds they have, but you know, you can't get a diagnosis in COVID time. It's a two-year waiting list anywhere. So we're just going on that assumption. Um, I think my husband is as well. We've been just really discussing that a lot lately. And if you are on the spectrum in particular, but ADHD too, you have no real sense of interoception, which is where you're, you can tell from your body that you're hungry. You can sense in your body that you're angry because you notice that your hands are clenched and your eyebrows fur- furrowed. They're not very good at that. And so karmically, I feel like there's some wonderful opportunity for me here to be the teacher of the body to them where I was raised to be only my brain. Um, And we do a lot of work. (laughs) My kids and I, we have a friend who's a somatic um, specialist with kids in neurological stress. And she comes to our house once a week and helps us. And she taught us soul speak, which is when one of my kids is starting to get upset. I just match the tone, but we don't talk at all. We just... And we'll have 20 minute conversations that way. Mm-hmm. And as I, when I was a kid, I would have been terrified of that. What does that mean? But I can watch them not only start to drop the nervous system stress, but also connect with me. And then sibling comes in, we do it together. And it's like 30 minutes of nonsense. And they just laugh and laugh and laugh. Yeah. So yeah, where I am right now, it is like, oh my God, have I overprivileged the written word the um the spoken direction the feeling that i had knowledge that everyone should understand that would that's gone now yeah or going yeah well and you can see the evolution just mm-hmm. in in the books that you've written too it, of the way mm-hmm. that, that has gone with food too right because yeah. there are you know in gluten free girl there are recipes and they're like traditional recipes right and then mm-hmm. the evolution mm-hmm. to like the most recent work that you've done is around this freedom this creativity let's let's play with this here's how this came about you know um yeah, yeah. i think is really cool thank you my memoir enough is the latest one that i published and that was a complete divergence away from food but what i came to realize is that um you know, a series of hard times there for a few years. I had a mini stroke in 2015, which acted just like a stroke. Um, and I was in the ambulance, not able to move my left side of my, my body at all. But the terrifying thing was that I couldn't use my mind. I couldn't form sentences. I couldn't, um, ask questions what was going on. Um, and then luckily all the symptoms dissipated by the next morning. And so it was a TIA, a transient ischemic attack instead of a full-blown stroke. It took me months to recover my brain, but it, you know, at least I didn't have a stroke. Yeah. And um, that book came about because my doctor, who was really a guru, not a typical doctor at all. He's retired now, sadly. Um, he called me and I'll never forget this. Um, my husband had called him in a panic the day of the stroke to say, you know, this is happening to Shauna. We don't know what's going on. He was still my doctor and couldn't get a hold of him. Turns out he was on a camping trip with his family and had no reception. But mm-hmm. one of them had like taken his phone and gone to a little town and was like, oh, wait, dad, there are some emergency things on here. So he rode 11 miles on his bike to get enough bars to be able to call me back. Wow. Talk about the body. Yeah, I just got goosebumps that like, like full body goosebumps. I, it was that and what he said that really changed my life, that much care and that much attentiveness. But also what he said was, Shauna, all of your tests are healthy. Your brain is great. They did see in the MRI that you were having some sort of attack, but you were, your brain is great. Your heart is strong. There are no clogged arteries. I was like, well, that's a hell of a way to find out I'm healthy. What the heck is going on? And he said, we just know now, medical community has been slow to keep up with this, but we know now that psychological neurological stress in the body can cause physical damage Mm. so this might have been a little temporary quirk like a little bit of cholesterol got chunked off who knows but i think you should take it as your wake-up call and ask yourself what makes you feel anxious what makes you feel like you have to pretend and run and what 
in your life makes you feel like you're not good enough Mm -hmm. and then make that long list and start dropping them all. Mm -hmm. And it was the best piece of advice I've ever gotten. Um, It was the genesis of my book. And what I realized is that all the times I was writing gluten-free girl, I didn't feel comfortable talking about them. Sometimes I would talk about hard things, but not the hard thing, not the way I was raised, not how the trauma would actually require me to be working 80 hours a week in my mind, not the way that I had to put on a persona and be gluten-free girl. And I had to quit it because I felt like I was pretending again. Anytime I pretend, I like get allergic rashes. My body isn't like, nope, that's not it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I've heard from many, many women that the way that I wrote that is a series of essays starting with not good enough to enough pretending to good enough that has helped them in their lives too. And that means more to me than any recipe I ever wrote. Yeah. Well, I think it's the, the whole, I mean, what I love is, you know, again, I've only known of you since 2007, <laughs> but just the evolution during that mm. time, right. Of, Um, and I was lucky enough to have lived in Seattle for a while. So I was, you know, close enough that I could come over to Vashon and take a class with you or, you know, um, and book readings that that way too. Yes. Yeah. So there, you know, um, but, but watching the evolution, right. There's this, and, and that's the piece that I think is so fabulous is that you're, uh, you know, I, I always talk about being in relationship is, a constant updating of information, right? It's constant intake. Like we can constantly change our ideas of either the things or the people or the spaces that we're in relationship to if we're paying attention and if we're willing to do that, right? And that's what enhances and grows our lived experience. You are a prime example of that. I mean, the fact that you didn't ever say to yourself like, oh, now I'm just going to be gluten-free girl and that's what I'm going to be, period, end of story for the rest (laughs) of my life, right? Like you, and you've been so open about your relationship with your husband and your relationship as a parent and your relationship with your parents. And Mm -hmm. that sort of like, you are one of those people who is the living embodied presence of constant updating and seeking information and then shifting and making that something like integrating it into your life. And then we thank you so much. It really means so much to me because that's, that's really the only purpose I have in life anymore. You know, um, I thought I was a writer and I still write and I love writing. I'll never stop writing, but I feel like, um, I just want to help other people live more free. I had so much time in my life where I didn't live free. Mm-hmm. And this last year and a half, the two years, two and a half years since COVID began, what became clear to me was that what saved, what saved my family during COVID, which was terrifying for me, the idea like, oh, we're all going to be caught in the house and not be able to move. Ah, this is like my kid <laughs> life again. <laughs> I thought and thought. And then one night I woke up and there was this word in red on the dark sky and it was joy. Mm. Um, nobody had written it. It was my brain. Um, but it was like this amazing revelation because I thought, well, the only thing that was different now or could be different now from what it was like when I was a kid is besides the fact we're not doing crazy things to our kids, um, is that there was no joy when I was a kid. You know, joy is terrifying if you're in a hard place because you can't trust it. It'll, it can be taken away anyway. So I'd find little joys, but the idea of living a joyful life did not happen. And so I made joy our emphasis when we started COVID and the kids and I and Danny, we would all just like, we went through every Marvel movie. We went through all of the office. We went through all of, you know, whatever was just going to make us laugh. Yeah. And I didn't emphasize academics. I'm like, look, Zoom school is stupid. <laughs> there's only so much you can get done. There's still asking you to do homework and there's like, none of this is happening. You do what you can and we're going to turn it off. Yeah. Um, and not only did it make their experience possible to be okay, but I had no idea that actually it was going to heal my PTSD more than anything I'd done. Yeah. Just adding joy to my life became so deeply healing that now I want to share that with other people. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I, you know, I feel the same way. There's something, there was something magic about raising my kids in this very intentional way mm-hmm. that was very, very different from the way that I was raised yep. that healed me more than I ever could have imagined. Yep. Yep. Um, and 
now, you know, the kids that I raised are 20, 21, 22, and 23 oh years old gosh. and doing amazing things. And they're, and they know how to find joy. Yeah. Right. They know, and they know, like one of the things that I brought them up knowing was do it until it's not fun anymore. And then when it isn't fun anymore, stop doing it. It doesn't make you a quitter. It doesn't make you a loser. It doesn't mean exploring. Yeah. Like there are so many amazing things to check out in this world and so many different ways to evolve over time. I mean, you know, I went to college thinking I was going to be a physician and I did the strict pre-med track, right? You know, Mm -hmm. since then I've had a million different jobs and a million different ways. And, you know, I never thought I was going to be a writer and now I have four books out in the world. And, and also I'm not going to be a writer. I'm going to be a grief and rage instructor. I'm going to be a podcaster. I'm going to write. There's this, there's that sense of freedom in being able to give yourself permission. And so I love that that's part of what you're doing right now. So before we close out, I would love, I know this is not about food, but I would love (laughs) for you to talk about the Camp Courage thing that you're doing right now in the service. Camp Curiosity. Or yeah, Camp Curiosity, absolutely. sorry. It did so, take courage though. <laughs> it's over. courage, that's right. Um, Camp Curiosity is the kind of culmination of the joy workshops I've been doing. I did in these joy workshops, which people loved, um, and talked about neurological stress and talked about how to recognize it and talk about how to get yourself out of it um, with movement and, and joy. And we did talk about joy, but what I realized is the presentation wasn't so joyful. And that was the key. It needed to be way more playful for us to feel good. So what Camp Curiosity is, is a six-week online course, a six-week online camp where um, women can come to any of these three Zooms I do a week. Um, I think there are 50 women signed up for it. It's been absolutely marvelous. Some of them show up, some of them don't, but I definitely see these patterns of people. Like I can only come on Saturdays, but I wouldn't miss it. Mm -hmm. Um, And on Mondays, we have conversations that I guide and facilitate about what's hard um, and how we can let go of shoulds and how we can stop being people pleasers and all those different things. And specifically for women. Thursdays is the creative space where I have an artist or some someone who's creative come on and we just, she and I discuss for 45 minutes, her creative process, what drives her, what, how she feels about mistakes. Um, this last week we had my friend Casey Carter, who's a chef in LA and how food can absolutely be an act of creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all during that time, I encourage everyone to come to make something while they listen. And then after the first 45 minutes, the guest leaves and I just put on some music and we all just make something together. People are working on Felton for the first time. People are, are you know, writing songs. People are, you know, it, whatever it is, it's absolutely beautiful to be in space with women are creating. And Saturday mornings is make them laugh. So we just line up anything that made us laugh th- that week. Mm-hmm. And someone said, oh, I've, been saving this, you know, TikTok. Okay, send it to me. Here's the URL. We'll watch it, you know. And that amount of joy of just the silliness of giving yourself two hours to laugh with other women and no other agenda has been amazing. Um, We also have a Slack channel, which has become a community. I absolutely adore it. And then I'm also sending out mindfulness um, audio Mm -hmm. three times a week um, about how to become mindful and how to sit with discomfort and how to allow yourself to feel joy. Um, I've been a Buddhist for 22 years. So that, that part of the mindfulness is really kind of the thread that ties it all together, which is what I was missing before. Because if we're not mindful about our own lives, we could miss the gorgeous sunset that someone else is finding joy in because we're so worried about work. And so that has been a grand experiment. It's been wonderful. Um, I'm not going to run another Camp Curiosity again until the spring, but right now I'm focusing on the women who were there. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a writer's group. Some can join. I have, um, women with ADHD women's circle that I'm running. Um, and then I also have my Substack newsletter, which is called getting curious about my story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is shift has just shifted because camp curiosity. So the three things we work on are how to find your own calm, mm-hmm. how to understand your body and your mind mm-hmm. and how to enjoy your life. So now my Substack is that same triplicate over and over again, like how to find your calm and how to understand your mind. We've all got magnificent minds and most of them are just weird. And so being able to embrace your own weirdness is a big part of it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're going to make sure to link to all of those opportunities where folks can find you and your work um, in the show notes. Cause I think 
Yeah, I think that's one of the things that COVID did for a lot of us was sort of reframe mm-hmm. what are we doing? What are we yes. spending our time and energy doing? Yes. And then yes. how do we how do we do this a little differently? And so for folks like you who had a bit of a head start, you know, who can, mm-hmm. you know, mentor yeah. folks through that, I think yeah. it's a big deal. And I think it's going to be a big part of our healing. So I think so too, so much. I mean, I, I have to say, um, I work only with women because I understand women better. And I think women talking together in particular, there is such power of a group of 12 women plus me, 13, who show up every week at the same time for each other and watching community develop is one of my absolute favorite joys. But also, you know, everyone I think should be given therapy free in America. (laughs) Since they can't do that. I'm not a therapist, but I do find that there is such deep therapeutic work for women listening to each other and thinking, oh, you too? Oh, me too. Oh, maybe it's not just me. You know, so that just, it's the relationship that heals and that's what really moves me. Yeah. Yeah. And that honestly, that's the whole premise of this entire podcast is to look at all of those different kinds of ways that we relate to ourselves, to bodies, to nature, to our children, you know, because that I'm with you on that. Like this whole society of individuals is nonsense. It's utter ridiculousness. Silliness. I sometimes hear from people saying, but do you have a license to teach these things? Are you a therapist? Are you a life coach? I'm like, "Mm, nope, I've just lived and this is my process. And like you said, I've done it all out loud. So if it doesn't work for you because I don't have letters behind my name, that's fine. You don't have to work with me. But the idea that I would need to go, you know, pay $2,000 to get a life coach certification to me is pretty bizarre because what I'm offering is community and conversation. That's it. You don't need a license for that. So, um, I'm just going to keep trusting that's the right path. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is because I, you know, you're touching people's lives and you have been, I mean, you know, for a really, really long time. So Mm, I feel very lucky for that. That is really important to me. All right. One last question. I'm going to bring it right back around to food. What is your family's like favorite thing right now? This August of 2022, like what's the food Mm -hmm. right now in your house? Okay, well, the image popped in my head, so I have to trust it. One of the things that I have learned to do with kids that I didn't before when we were making recipes over and over again is to actually just prep up all the ingredients and have them ready. So my very favorite dinner is what takes 10 minutes uh, because we've done all that work before. So I made it, I make a big platter full of stuff and kids can grab whatever they want. Um, so it, the one we made the other night is roasted smoked chicken, all cut up, um, baba ganoush, oven roasted tomatoes, uh, braised greens and, um, cider bread for the kids. And I think a couple of things. And then my daughter put ranch on it on hers. <laughs> yeah. I love that kind of plan spontaneity. So yeah. the kids don't see it cause we don't ask them yet to be part of that, but you right. know, food just appears when they're hungry and that's kind of magic. Yeah. Yeah. My, they, my kids were a big fan of that. They used to call them bowls. So I would mm-hmm. make like, I would, there was a huge thing of quinoa or a huge thing of like sticky rice. And then, yeah. you know, maybe there was some sliced sushi grade tuna and some edamame and some cucumbers that were chopped. And so, you know, like everybody can put together whatever they want, pile it in there. You know, do you want teriyaki sauce on it? Go for it. Do you want mm-hmm. sauce on it? Go for it. Do you want no yep. sauce on it? Do your thing, you know, squeeze some Absolutely. <laughs> And if my youngest chooses rice and olives, that's fine. Yeah, you know, it's it's about choice and it's about joy and it's about spontaneity. So yeah, that's pretty much what we do. We have pizza nights on Fridays. Mm-hmm. And other than that, it's either bowls or it's, you know, a platter. If they, they love it, if they call it leftover night, I just take everything out and I'm like, hey, let's put it on a cheese board and it looks pretty. <laughs> yeah, we used to call that fend for yourself night because I would cook like... Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday and Saturdays we were like, fend for yourself, whatever's in the yep. fridge. <laughs> Absolutely. It's what we do too. And they think it's so fun. Yeah. I, I just want them to enjoy it. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. It's been so great spending this time talking to you. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. You know, I'm really excited for the work that you're doing um, out in the world. And I'm just so appreciative. Thank you so much. And as, and you, you're doing great work. And, you know, I think we all have to be here for each other, not just ourselves. That's really, for me, the key to everything. 
So thank you for connecting with me and talking and asking me here. That's great. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Shauna. We will, for everybody, we'll link to all the good stuff in the show notes so you can find Shauna. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of It's Relatable. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and you can find links to all the things we talked about on this episode in the show notes on the webpage for the podcast at mindbodyspirit.fm. Please reach out to me with questions, comments, and ideas for the show and download episodes and leave reviews on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. If you like, subscribe, and follow, you'll be sure to get updated whenever there's a new show to listen to. The music at the beginning and the end of the show is a clip from a song called Get By. It was written by Lauren O'Driscoll, Alexander Parker Lawrence, and Moses Ray Walker. The song is performed by Lorelai and Sam Rydell, and you can find the whole amazing song wherever you stream music. I highly recommend it if you need a mood lifter. I also want to give a shout out to Moses Walker for helping me produce this podcast. He is always and forever making these technical themes seem so much more doable for me. And I am grateful for his expertise and advice. Until next time, take care, mind your relationships, and be well, everyone.